with you all. This morning we are continuing our way through the Gospel of Mark, and today we're in chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Please follow along with me in your Bible or where it's printed for you in the bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the winds, the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care? That we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, you alone know our hearts, and you know what each of us brings into the room this morning. You know the storms that threaten to break us and of which we are afraid. By the power of your Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would use your word now to show us your power and your glory and the abiding goodness of your Son for our comfort and our conviction and our strength that we might better worship you. And so, Lord, ultimately, I pray that you would use this time to show us your glory. Pray this in the, son, the name of your Son. Amen. Well, let me say right off the bat that one thing I am not going to say from this passage is that God will still your storm if you just ask Him. That God will remove the difficult things from your life if you only ask more earnestly. For one, that is far from the point that this passage is making. And second... Many of you know that that is not true and would feel rightly insulted by that sentiment because you've been in a storm or you are in a storm now and you have called out to God to calm it and he either has not or currently is not. While it's true that God may calm a storm when we ask him, the point of this passage is not to promise you that he will. So then what does it have to say to us? I want to draw our attention to verses 40 through 41, which lay open how this all landed with the disciples, what they took away from it upon further reflection. In particular, I want you to notice the themes of fear and faith. After calming the storm... Jesus said to them, verse 40, Why are you so afraid? 
have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is not a story about Jesus calming our storms. This is a story about fear and faith. About the disciples, their response after witnessing an act of God. About making a judgment about Jesus in real time as they see him do what only God can do. And in fact, the next two stories in Mark's are also in Mark are also going to highlight these polar responses, fear or faith. When Jesus drives out a legion of demons from a man, some people are afraid and ask him to leave the town. Others who hear of it marvel. Or the woman with the discharge of blood comes with fear before Jesus, and he tells her, Your faith has made you well. Or Jairus' daughter, the report comes that she has died. And Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. Fear or faith. Fear of our circumstances or even of Jesus himself and of a power that unsettles us because it defies what we know. Or faith that Jesus is God. And that his power is a protective and saving one. Fear or faith? These are the responses put before us this morning. And so this morning, let's answer the question that the disciples ask. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? We'll answer it in four parts. He is man and God. One. Two, he is powerful over evil. Three, he cares. And fourth, he is with us. He is man and God. He is powerful over evil. He cares. And he is with us. Let's look at our first point. Jesus is man and God. Before we get to the miracle itself... I want to draw our attention to the simple tactile details of the setup of the miracle. Skim the first four verses of our passage and notice the details that Mark finds worthwhile to note. Verse 35, he tells us that this happened at evening, on the same day that Jesus, or just after Jesus is teaching the parables that we've just been looking at. Verse 36, they set sail right away. Right as he finished his teaching, they left in that same boat. And the other boats were with him. So there was a group of boats on the sea. And verse 37 describes the details of the storm, that the waves were breaking into the boat. It's putting you right there in the action. And then verse 38, that he's sleeping in the stern. And then here, this most seemingly innocuous detail, that he was asleep on the cushion. Why does Mark want us to know that Jesus was asleep on the cushion? Scrolls are expensive. Why waste ink on that? These details are here to underscore that this is history. This happened the way any true story happens. On a day, in a place, 
with real objects and people. This is not a myth. This is news report. A man was in a common fishing boat, sleeping like humans do, when he woke and he rebuked the wind and the sea. He commanded the waters as no human has ever done. If Jesus is not a historical figure, this story would matter no more to you and me than the Odyssey or the Iliad. But this is an eyewitness account attested in two other Gospels. If you had been a Jewish person in the first century, you would have heard report of someone who looked like you, dressed like you, talked like you, but commanded the water with his very voice. You know, imagine hearing tomorrow that some guy who lives on Lake Whatcom and wears a Patagonia puffy just like you spoke a word and made the lake still instantly. This is that kind of report that the people are hearing. And Mark's intent with all these details is to communicate this really happened. This is history. Jesus is a man, and he did this in the flesh. Well, now let's move on to the miracle itself and how it points to Jesus' divinity, how it shows that he is God. And to do that, I'm going to take us through a few key Old Testament passages to show a pattern that only God commands the waters. We'll start in the beginning, Genesis 1. God has created the heavens and the earth, and, and now he is forming that which he has made. And verse 6 says, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. The waters listened. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. The waters listened. And so one of the very first acts of God recorded in the scriptures is a speech act wherein he commands the waters, and they listen. Of course, soon after this, you have a story of the flood, God commanding the waters, and Exodus, and the crossing of the Red Sea, again, God commanding the waters. But there are two passages in the Old Testament with particularly close ties to ours, and I want to show us those. Um, one of them is the story of Jonah. Jonah, you may know the story, is a prophet, and God has called him to preach to Nineveh, and Jonah doesn't want to, and so he heads in the exact opposite direct, uh, direction on a ship. And God not so gently redirects him by sending a violent storm, and his fellow sailors are frantically throwing cargo over the ship to try and stay afloat, and they're crying out to their gods for help. But where's Jonah? Jonah, it says, had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. And eventually Jonah tells them how to make the storm cease and it's to throw him overboard. And they do and immediately the waters are still and Here's how the scene ends. Again, listen to the parallels. Then the men feared 
the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. A storm, a sleeping passenger, a stillness, and the fear of the Lord. These are elements of our story. Oh, how about Psalm 107? Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Let me pause here for a moment and comment on this verse that's just told us that God commanded the stormy wind. Here we see plainly what we might sense to be the case in our passage, that God not only calmed the storm, but commanded it to rise in the first place. At least in this example from Psalms, we know that God has purposes for raising up storms. And I'm going to return to that thought more in a bit, but I wanted to highlight it on our way through this passage. Let's continue. They mounted up to heaven, these are the waves, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. Then they cried to the Lord in their troubles, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. In all of Scripture, only one person has ever commanded the waters, and that is God Himself. And so when the disciples ask, who then is this that the wind and the sea obey Him, the Old Testament thunders an answer, God. This is God. In the words of Psalm 89, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So if Jesus shown here is as mighty as the Lord God of hosts, of whom there is no equal, then who is he? He is the Lord God of hosts. Jesus does not call out to a God to still the waters, to still the waters. He commands the waters himself because he is God. And the question for us is, what do we make of him? What do we make of a man who who can command the wind and the sea? And if he speaks to the wind and the sea and they obey him, then what do you think we should do when he speaks to us? If the waves bow to his authority, we must as well. Here's how James Edwards, a Bible scholar, puts the task before us of making a right judgment about Jesus. He's commenting on the set of stories that we are entering with this one. He says, The right judgment of Jesus cannot be made by following convention. For Jesus supersedes the powers of nature and demons and illness and death. Confining Jesus within such categories is to misunderstand him. Acknowledging his supremacy over 
such categories is the first act of discipleship. In other words, convention, following convention, doesn't help you make a judgment about the God-man who defies convention. He is in a category of his own. And so, how will you respond? Fear or faith? Fear of your circumstances and his power or faith? That his power shows that he is God. And so this is our first and primary answer to the question the disciples ask. Who is this? He is man and God. What else can we say about him from this passage? That leads to our second point. The second thing we can say is that Jesus is powerful over evil. He is powerful over evil. You know, there are two hints in this account that demonstrate not only Jesus' power over nature, but also his power over evil. One hint is the element of water itself. In biblical literature, water is often a symbol for chaos or hostility. So, for example, in the creation story, God sets the waters in, their, in its place. He creates order so that life might exist on earth. And then in the flood, he reverses that order. He, he invites chaos back in by letting the waters exceed their boundaries so as to destroy. And in several places throughout the Old Testament, God is described as rebuking the sea and stilling the waters, which indicates that the waters are an unruly force. Well, a second and more direct hint has to do with this word rebuke that we see in verse 39, the the word that's used to describe his command of the sea. That Greek word is the same one that's used twice earlier in Mark to describe Jesus rebuking unclean spirits. And directly after this story is one of Jesus rebuking a legion of unclean spirits, of exercising uh, uh, demons. And so both on a semantic or word level and a contextual level, we have strong hints that this miracle displays more than Jesus' power over nature, although it certainly does, but also his power over evil. He has control over it. And this may invite in you a fairly common rebuttal against Christianity, which goes something like this. If God is all-powerful and He is good, then why does He allow evil? Why not restrain evil completely? And a full answer to that question is more than this sermon can offer, but actually my next point will begin to get at an answer to that. And so let's move to the third point this morning. So we've seen so far that Jesus is man and God, and He is powerful over evil. And now we see that Jesus cares. Jesus cares. In verse 38, we see the raw humanity of the disciples. You know, Mark, they don't look very good in this story. And Mark chose not to edit out their uh, brash words to Jesus in verse 38, they basically accuse him. 
of neglect. They say to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? How many of us feel that way in our suffering? Or as we look out at the suffering of others, God, do you not care? Well, the irony here is that Jesus cares deeply for them, something they will see more clearly in retrospect after the events at the end of our gospel unfold. You know, you've probably had the experience of reading a book or watching a movie a second or third time through and noticing on those second and third watches something earlier in the movie that hints towards what happens at the end. But on your first way through, you wouldn't have thought to notice those details. But knowing the end, you know why they were included before. Consider how the disciples might answer their own question here. Don't you care that we are perishing? Looking back on this event after Jesus' suffering and death on the cross on their behalf. Don't you care that we are perishing? Here's how John summarized Jesus' concern about that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. The reason Jesus is there in the first place is because God cares that they are perishing, that the world is perishing. The pattern of Scripture is that God hears our cries for deliverance and responds, perhaps not in the timing we desire, but in the timing He determines is good and right. Jesus has a purpose for this storm, and it is to reveal His nature to His disciples and to work faith in them. In the heat of the moment, they don't want to drown, and Jesus doesn't care. In retrospect, God has used this moment to save them. Many of our sufferings can only be understood in retrospect. When we are in the thick of the storm, we can't understand why God brought it and why God won't lift it. It reminds me of a song by Sarah Groves where she's describing depression, and she writes, From this one place I can't see very far. In this one moment I'm square in the dark. But these are the things I will trust in my heart. You can see something else. When we are beneath the clouds, we cannot see. Our experience is telling us that God has abandoned us, that our pain has no purpose, that these are wasted years. But, God has, but if God has the power to raise the storm and calm the storm, might God have a purpose for the storm? Might a God this powerful have a purpose for the storm? Might he see something else? In the words of Pastor Tim Keller, if you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, 
then you must, at the same time, have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. And here we come to the crux of making peace with suffering. God's ways are higher than our ways. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, gave him up to suffer. And he who with the word of his voice can command the sea, might he not only have reasons for suffering, but good ones? Perhaps one of those reasons is to give you something higher than safety to worship. Something higher than comfort. Or something higher than the life you've imagined. Or something higher than perfect relational peace. The disciples here move from fear to fear. Fear for their life to fear of God. They have beheld God as he is. The beginnings of faith. God is taking them to the edge of their life to work faith in them. And so upon further reflection, we see that suffering is not a sign that God doesn't care. But in fact, the opposite. That even and perhaps especially in suffering, he has a gift known only to the desperate. That God alone is mighty to save and that God alone is enough. This is not something you come to embrace in times of peace. So before God's power comforts us, it often frightens us. But at least we begin to know him as he is. And this is eternal life, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And I recognize that this is a difficult truth. But to those who will receive its difficulty, they will experience its healing powers. That God has purposes beyond our imagination for pain. So this brings us to our last point. We've seen that Jesus is man and God, and that he is powerful over evil, and that he cares. And he is all those things, not at a distance, but with us. Point number four, Jesus is with us. It's worth reflecting on the simple fact that Jesus is in the boat. The disciples are not alone in the storm. Jesus, the powerful one, is there with them. And you think about the comfort that this is to the hearers of Mark's gospel, the first hearers who are likely sitting under severe and constant threat of Rome, watching some of their brothers and sisters be torn apart by lions or lit on fire. As one commentator put it, this story assured them as it assures us that even seismic revolts against God's Son cannot swamp the boat 
in which he is gathered with his disciples. God is with his church, and God is with you. Ultimately, this is why Jesus says, why are you so afraid? It's because the question beneath the question is, do you not know who's in the boat with you? Have you not seen my power? Have you not beheld my love and my compassion? Do you not trust that I see? The Christian God is not a distant, removed deity. He is the God in the boat. The Bible says that more than that, Jesus has known our every weakness and trial and has overcome them and can sympathize with them. In fact, he has tasted more than we have tasted. He has gone to the furthest depth. He was thrown overboard, you might say, for our sake. Spent three days in the belly of the grave that he might experience death on our behalf and rise again to conquer it. And what is he now to us? As our risen Lord, he is an anchor. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, Hebrews says, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In every storm, Jesus is an anchor for the soul. And he is with you. And so we have answered the disciples' question, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He is man and God. He is powerful over evil. He cares, and he is with us. And so I put again before us Jesus' question to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? This passage is calling us to make a judgment about Jesus and about our circumstances, fear or faith. If you do not yet believe that Jesus is the Son of God, or if you are afraid that He is and He is going to take your joy from from you, put yourself in the boat and consider what it means that a man that a man commanded the waters. If that is true, and if this same man died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins in his life and teaching, have begun a movement 2,000 years old and several billion members strong, many of whom have died for him, then this is someone you have to reckon with. This is not a man you can ignore There is a credible report before you. Make a judgment about Jesus. What do you make of a man who commanded the waters and they listened? And if you already believe in this good and powerful God, then what do you make of your storm? And I ask this to you, not in a rebuking way, 
but I hope to invite you to maybe a more difficult but ultimately more fruitful perspective on your suffering. How might you navigate it differently if you believed that God brought the storm and can still the storm and is with you in the storm and that he cares? Perhaps you will learn to befriend the storm, to see it as a torrent that is training your faith, that is doing something beautiful in you and glorious to the world. Perhaps you will come to a place of stillness and peace and even love. And say with Charles Spurgeon, who knew great suffering in his life, I have learned to kiss the wave that beats me against the rock of ages. Let's pray. Father, there is no one mighty like you. There is no one in command of time, in history, of mountains and oceans, of human souls. You are over all things, and you are good, and you are powerful, and you love us. These are magnificent truths that are hard for us to bear. The only way we can bear them is with hearts of faith, and only you can work faith in us. So I ask you, God, work faith in our hearts this morning for those who do not yet believe and for those who believe but the burdens of life are weighing heavily and suffocating the belief. Help us. Bear us up. Speak to us your stillness and your peace. We love you, God, because you first loved us and you care that we are perishing. In your son's name I pray, amen, amen.